the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, June 18th, 2021. That's right, we're coming to you right here from beautiful Madison, Wisconsin. And um, as such, you know, I don't know that people in Madison realize just how lucky they are. Or conversely, I don't think people in Madison realize just how fortunate they are compared to other people. In Madison. Let me walk that back for just one moment and paint a picture for you. It's a beautiful summer afternoon, and a local baseball park is full, just completely packed. The stands are completely full. It's a free game anyway. That probably helped, you know, pack it in. There, no one had to pay money to get in. But anyway, it's a free game. Everyone's uh, who wants to uh, wanted to get into the stands got there early and they are completely jam-packed full. The aisles are pretty much full. However, there's a spot where you can actually still watch the game, even if you're not in the park, where the, the wooden fence, which, you know, blocks all of you into the park, is only five feet tall. It's a, a segment of the fence about, I don't know, let's just say about 30 feet long enough for people to gather if they wanted to look in and watch the game from the angle of the fence. Um, and it's five feet tall. Great. Right. No problem. So long as you are taller than um, say five, six, you shouldn't have any problem comfortably watching the game while standing at the fence. Now, a dad and his two boys, they were not fortunate enough to get to the ballpark in time to get to the stands. They'd like to watch the game, at least for a while. Um, the dad himself, he's six feet tall. He knows he won't have any problem looking over that fence. He could stand there all day. No problem at all. But his one son is only five feet. The top of his head is at the top of the fence. He was, he's not going to be able to see anything. And the other son is four feet tall. He, he's hopeless. Uh, the best he can hope for is maybe to be fortunate enough to find a little hole in the fence to peek through, and that's not going to be much of a view. However, there are three crates sitting right there next to the fence. Each one is about a foot tall. They're 
perfectly strong enough for anybody to stand on. The dad, either kid, no problem. So each crate is a foot tall. Now, there are three people and there are three crates. If you wanted to say that, you know, we should be treating everything, all these resources here equally, each one of those one foot crates could go underneath the feet of each person. But what would that do exactly? Would that allow all three of them to see the game? Well, no. The dad, who's already six feet tall, would suddenly be seven feet tall. Heck, he, he's, uh, he would be almost belly buttoned at the top of the fence and would probably look very silly to anybody inside the, uh, the park. But anyway, he'd be, he'd be not only watching the game, I don't even know that he'd uh, be comfortable with how much of himself would be exposed. Anyway, he'd, he'd, be, he'd be able to see the thing without any box whatsoever. So, but if you're going to distribute things equally, he'd be seven feet tall, standing on one of those crates. His five-foot son would be six feet tall and could then easily watch the game just as easily as, as the dad could um, by himself. That would, that would be fine. But the four-foot tall kid on a, on a uh, one-foot box would only be five feet tall, and he'd have the same problem that the, uh, the, the five-foot tall kid had without the box. He still can't see the game. So, clearly, the solution here is not to put the equal resource of a foot crate underneath each one of these people. You need to distribute the resources according to how these people need them so that all three can enjoy it. And it's easily possible. The dad doesn't need a crate. Don't give him a crate. He can stand there. He's six feet tall. He's fine. Put one crate under the five foot tall kid, right? Now he's six feet tall too and can watch the game. Cool. And the four foot tall kid, give him two crates. He gets boosted by two feet. Now he's effectively six feet tall. All three of them then, standing shoulder to shoulder, can watch the game and enjoy it and cheer on their favorite athletes who are putting on this free exhibition for them. But you see, you can't do that if you treat the resources equally. You can't give everybody the same exact thing and expect that they'll all be able to accomplish the same thing with it. Just as with anything else in life, mindful use of resources is always better than mindless use. Mindless use of resources, where you want to be fair, says just give everybody the same thing. Mindful use says let's make sure that if people need more, they get more. And if people don't need anything at all, well, they don't necessarily need anything at that point. Now, it's far more important, far more, to make sure that you are giving the extra help to those who need the extra help than it is to make sure you're not giving the extra help to people who don't need it. Because honestly, it's going to have a much bigger impact on um, how well society functions if you make sure those who need more get what they need than to be worried about people getting too much. Now, that's all great, right? But let me just make sure that I outline two words that um, fit the situation. The first scenario where all three get the same one-foot crate, the same equal resource that's equal, equality, if you will, all right? They're all getting the same measure, quantity, amount, or number as each other, right? However, 
the word that defines how each one is getting what they need works as equitable, which means dealing fairly and equally with all concerned. So when you're dealing fairly and equally so that all have equal access to watching the game, for example, you give twice as much help to the shortest as you do to the one in the middle, and you don't need to give any help to the one that was already able to watch. That's equitable. Equal is you give the same amount of help to all three, and as it stands, one person still can't see the game. So we need equity in resources, not equality. Now, the funny thing is, is that this is really important in just about every sphere of life to recognize the difference, whether it's public health or politics, education, racial justice, more. If each public school in a certain county receives 150 new laptops, technically they're being treated equally. Cool, right? But it doesn't factor in that some of those schools might be located in high-income districts where most of the students already have their own laptops. Instead, officials should allocate the devices according to which schools have the greatest need for them. That way they can minimize the chance that dozens of laptops will end up gathering dust at one school while another doesn't have enough to go around. So again, equality, you divide resources in matching amounts without thinking about anything about it, just it's equal. Where equity focuses on dividing resources proportionally to achieve a fair outcome for those involved. With equity, the equality is found in the outcome, not in the allocation. Now, I wanted to bring this around because, as I mentioned glancingly there, this goes into something known as critical race theory, amongst other things, at least. Uh, It's a grouping of academic concepts that originated from the work of American legal scholars in the 70s. Now, these early analyses examined why the legal victories of the civil rights era had not translated to large-scale reductions of racial inequality, with a recurring answer being that colorblind laws, that is, laws that do not explicitly target racial groups, are insufficient in leveling the playing field. In the late 1980s, critical race theory became a broader movement in academia, growing beyond legal scholarship and entering other disciplines. Um, A brief overview of key concepts, first of all, is that race is a social construct, not a biological reality. That racism is systemic and or institutional beyond just manifesting as individual feelings of prejudice, and racism woven into legal structures negatively affects most people of color in different areas of life. Another key concept of critical race theory is that racism is a normal part of American life, not an aberration. Um, Another is that white Americans inherently hold a degree of privilege as beneficiaries of systemic racism, regardless of whether they consciously hold racist views. You don't have to be a racist to have white privilege. That, That has nothing to do with it. It's just that because you happen to be white and because the system is bent around racial inequality and that inequality is designed to put you on top, you're going to have privileges, whether or not you want them. Um, it's, it's not saying that white privilege, by the way, means that you don't have poverty 
or don't have hardship. It just means that you have privileges that affect many areas of life that other races do not have. For example, you're not going to be pulled over for driving while black. It's not going to happen. Um, people may be prone to an unconscious bias against those of other races. Again, this is a maybe, but that's a, a key part of critical race theory, that it could be easily true that there can be unconscious bias, you know, where you're not purposely thinking, oh, those black people, but you still might have bias against black people if you're white um, or, or whatever. Um, intersectionality is another concept. That means various identities intersect and contain their own nuances, like race and gender, gender and sexuality, etc. That these all contain nuances that need to be uh, worked out. Um, and finally, that the lived experiences of people of color ought to be centered and intellectually useful, even in an academic context. So those are those are a brief overview of key concepts of critical race theory. Now, is there evidence that critical race theory actually is valid? Well, sure. Uh, the evidence that advocates cite in favor of critical race theory is broad ranging and often well documented. Advocates often cite disparities in outcomes between racial groups in various areas of life. Most of these dis disparities are continuations of long term trends that extend well into the 20th century or even earlier. Prominent examples include, but are not limited to, like uh, racial disparities in policing, criminal justice. I mean, a review of relevant research suggests that black people receive more violent or harsher penalties than white counterparts, even when controlling for levels of criminality, demographic factors, all of that. Um, racial disparities in education, college attainment has risen for all races, but a gap has persisted between white and black Americans since the 1960s. Uh, disparities in health. African-Americans suffer worse outcomes in many areas of health, have an overall lower life expectancy, and report worse experiences with health professionals. Um, the racial wealth gap. Numerous metrics show African-American households have considerably lower household wealth than other races, especially white households, a trend that's continued since the early 20th century. This racial gap persists even with households of the same income range. In other words, households in the top 10% income percentile still have a large overall net worth disparity. Now, there's a noteworthy exception here. Households in the bottom 20% uh, income percentile have a median net worth of zero, whether the households are white or black. So basically, if you're in the, the lowest fifth of income, you have no net worth at all. It doesn't matter your race. Now, similarly, unemployment rates have historically been significantly higher for black Americans than white Americans. Black Americans are also underrepresented in top corporate positions and on average earn less than white and Asian Americans, even when controlling for educational attainment. So that education that's harder for black Americans to get isn't benefiting them as much once they earn that job. Um, rates of African-American home ownership are considerably lower than rates for white Americans. One commonly cited reason for this was redlining, where the Federal Housing Administration actively discriminated against black people from the 1930s to the 1960s. 
Now, the Federal Housing Administration was intended to lower the barrier for home ownership by insuring mortgages, but neighborhoods with more black people were highlighted in red on maps and deemed ineligible for these Federal Housing Authority-backed loans. Now, critical race theory's recommendation for rectifying such inequities, not inequality, inequity, is to propose race-specific solutions like reparations or affirmative action. Um, Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote the 2019 book How to Be an Anti-Racist, said that the discrimination is racist when it creates inequity, but if discrimination is creating equity, that's anti-racist. So, just to be clear, and I want to make sure that our definitions are clear here, racism and discrimination are not the same thing. Discrimination is simply the act of treating things differently based on some characteristic or another, and can be completely arbitrary or not. Um, And it can be applied um, by people of any race or gender or whatever against um, people or things of any other quality. Discrimination is fairly universal. Frankly, we use it all the time. Um, When you stop at a stoplight, it's because you see a red light uh, telling you to stop. And you know that a red light means stop. Your discrimination of what a red light means keeps you from wanting to move forward at that time. Likewise, when you see a green light, you know that you can proceed. And that's because, again, this is a matter of color, in this case being the trait of the light that you're discriminating. You're saying, hey, if it's a red light, I don't want to go through there. If it's a green light, it's telling me I can go through there. And that's a matter of discriminating which color of light you're dealing with and behaving according to that discrimination. That's not a negative thing. Where it becomes racism is when discrimination is applied across a system designed to keep a specific race down compared to the other predominant race. And if there are multiple races being kept down, well, that's also racism. So long as there's one race that's benefiting from being the only um, non-discriminated race. So discrimination in a systemic fashion based on race is racism. So if you are a black person and you've been treated poorly by a number of white people throughout your life, plus you've seen the privilege that white people have that you don't. And frankly, it makes you not want to treat white people in a friendly manner. Yeah, you're discriminating against white people, but you're not being racist. There's a difference. Because you see, your discrimination does not feed into the system that keeps white people oppressed. There is none such thing here in America. So... Again, racism is discrimination that keeps a race down. And there is none such thing for white people. No no such thing at all. Now, on the other hand, if you're going to use discrimination, your power of discrimination, to make sure that resources are being distributed equitably, that's a positive use of discrimination. If you're saying, well, look, 
you, sir, are tall enough to see this baseball game. You don't actually need anything under your feet to see it better. Uh, let's not give you a support under your feet. You don't need it. Yeah, you've discriminated against him for being taller, but that's okay. He, he doesn't need it. The other two, on the other hand, you've discriminated for because you realize they need the resources more. So, again, Mr. Kendi said, if discrimination is creating equity, it's anti-racist. See, racism specifically creates inequity between the races to the benefit of one over all the others. So, creating equity breaks racism down. Now, those making the case for such race-specific policies justify it on the grounds that racism has an all-encompassing impact on various aspects of life. Uh, Tana, uh, pardon me. Tainahisi Coates' 2014 essay, The Case for Reparations, which has been cited by pundits on the left and right as a pivotal moment in the reparations debate, exemplifies this. Coates uses the Chicago neighborhood of North Lawndale as a case study of housing discrimination's far-reaching impact. North Lawndale today, writes Coates, is 92% black and is in quotes, on the wrong end of virtually every socioeconomic indicator, with high rates of poverty, violence, incarceration, and infant mortality. Now, I would like to be quick to point out that critical race theory is not about making white people feel bad. Because it's not about us. It's about centering the experiences of people of color. Stop making it about you. Seriously. Instead of feeling bad, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe that we did this. Start thinking about how we can be positive, how we can make positive changes. All right. Again, it's not about us. It's not about us. Instead, it's about a greater us. Instead of being about white people, it's about people, all right? It's about people who have not been treated to a life that equals yours. It's about people who have not been allowed the same privileges you have. The real end-all and be-all of white privilege, if you want to know, is simply that White privilege is the privilege of being treated as a default human being. No consequences are allotted you by dint of your race. Whereas people who are not white have consequences they have to deal with because of their race all the time. So, if you want to make a difference in people's lives, seek to expand the privilege of being a fully accepted human being to all human beings, whatever race they are perceived to be. How do you do that? Well, try not to be so certain that you know what everybody's life is like. That's kind of arrogant, you know, just because your life has been a certain way doesn't mean others has. 
Um, Try not to be so defensive about it. Just listen. In other words, when you hear that there's racial inequality and you're white, don't get your back up about it. Listen to people. Understand their point of view. See what can be done to help. But at the very least, just listen. Open-minded listening is the key to helping make things better. You you don't have to immediately go, well, that's not me. I'm not like that. Look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you are the perfect example of what a white person should be. Because there's too many out there that aren't. So don't say it. Don't get that way. It's not about you. It's about trying to bring our human brothers and sisters who are not white up to the standards that we ourselves have as white people in our privilege. Try to, you know, welcome in the information about it. If you're more humble and less defensive, it really does help. Now, you're going to hear things when you do that that you might have trouble believing. Okay, I get that. But remember, these people that are talking to you are giving you a gift. They don't have to talk to you. They've been disbelieved their entire lives. They've been told that their stories don't matter their entire lives. If they are bothering to spend their precious minutes telling you about their experience, please, by default, believe them. They don't really have much motivation to lie to you about it. And the final thing is really is, is to take that, that wall of apathy that really does guard white privilege, that wall of, well, that's not my problem. That's somebody else's problem. I can't deal with that. I got my own problems. No, 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 no. Stop it. These are human beings just like you. Try to feel for them at least a little. Break with that apathy. And the last thing that you really ought to know is that you really shouldn't have this sense of white solidarity. Just like race is a social construct in general and not a biological one, being white isn't biological. It just means that you're amongst the people that are being treated the way all human beings should be. And if you are proud of that, that you are amongst that group, that also means you're proud of the oppression being shown others. That's a bad look. Break with that solidarity. Say, hey, you know what? I know that society calls me white, and I accept that that's the way things are, but I don't think that's the way things should be. And I don't think that we should be treated any differently just because we're white. Break with that white solidarity. There's no reason to have it. The only thing you get from white solidarity is more oppression of people who aren't white by society's standards. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. 
on WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No one personal Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. I like it. I think he likes it. Lots of more. Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me.
are back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, sometimes people wonder um, where my resources come from when it comes to the stories I choose. Um, because I'm often covering stories that are just not being covered, or at the very least, not being covered in an unbiased or objective fashion. And um, so I've been asked, Aldous, hey, what are your sources like? How, how do you get that? Well, don't worry. This isn't one of those things where a journalist has to protect his sources. <laughs> that's I'm not getting firsthand research from Jimmy out of the corner. You know, that, that's not what we're doing here. Okay. And uh, no. In fact, uh, thefactual.com is a great resource, although it's a pay resource. So, you know, if you don't want to deal with them, I understand. But they were nice enough to put together how it is they score objective news sources. Um, and, and so just to give you an idea, first, I'm going to tell you how they score objective news sources. And then I'm going to go through the list that they made of the most objective news sources you can find online, um, according to uh, research done from January 1st of last year through uh, May 18th of this year. So, um, which news sources are the most objective? Well, to be objective, of course, means that you're not influenced by personal feelings or opinions in considering and representing facts. Whether you're talking about COVID-19 or the Capitol riot, um, we need objective fact-based journalism as much as ever to provide clarity on the events that we have now. Whether you're talking about the latest medical advice, political debates, foreign policy, it doesn't matter. But if you want to find the best, most unbiased news, here's how the factual at thefactual.com does it. First, they look at the number and diversity of links and meaningful notes on an article that they find online. Is the article supported by evidence? Does the article link to a diverse range of sources or just a few? Does the article include direct quotes, which would be evidence of primary research? This indicates whether the article is supported by facts. Uh, the next thing is the writing tone. They want to know, is the article written to convey information or is it written to elicit an emotional response? Is the article heavily opinionated, or strictly about conveying information. This gets to the core of objectivity, not allowing bias to influence the presentation of facts. The next thing to look at is the topical expertise of the author. Has the author written on this topic before? Whether it's like public health, business, foreign policy, what have you. How have past articles by the author on the same subject scored when you look at meaningful quotes and links and all that kind of thing, the writing tone. This will tell you if the author has relevant topical knowledge. The last thing to look at when trying to figure out uh, objective and new sources is the article history of the site that's publishing the piece. How have other articles from the same source you know, scored when you're looking at you know, writing tone, topical expertise of the authors, number and diversity of links, meaningful quotes, all of that. Um, are they usually well-researched? That kind of thing. This will tell you whether the publishing site has a record of producing quality journalism. Now, the combination of those four metrics, the uh, number of links with meaningful quotes, etc., writing tone, topical expertise, and the article history of the site, that'll tell you whether or not um, 
what you're looking at is a credible news source overall. And um, the factual themselves actually score each thing particular in particular and average it out. Um, and basically any article that scores 75% or higher is very likely to be credible, meaning it's going to be well-researched, written by an author with relevant topical experience, coming from a publisher who has a history of publishing reputable content, and likely to be written in a neutral tone. So, that's what they look for. Now, here's the results of the uh, study, which scored over 820 8,000 articles, that's 828,000 articles from a total of 53 different news outlets. Um, and that was the total output of these sources from January 1st, 2020 to May 18th, 2021, 504 days total. And um, by scoring them out, here's how they came to be. The number one um, was factcheck.org. Factcheck.org, one of the preeminent fact-checking websites lives up to that reputation by routinely topping um, the, you know, uh, all of these lists of credible scores that the factual puts together uh, through major events in 2020 and 2021 from COVID-19 to the Capitol riot, the presidential election factcheck.org has provided extensively researched articles to help researchers uh, and readers separate fact from fiction. Um, the Smithsonian Magazine. That's another one. They're, they're at uh, smithsonianmag.com. So again, smithsonianmag.com. Um, their coverage specializes in all things science, history, art, popular culture, and innovation with the backing of the Smithsonian Institution, the world's largest museum, research, and education complex. And uh, they, they score very, very well. Uh, next up, third, uh, third one on this list is Undark. I don't know if you've heard of them before or not, but they're very good. They're at Undark. That's U-N-D-A-R-K.org. And Undark is here to help uh, help people understand how science, in quotes, collides with politics, economics, and culture, and where differing worldviews compete for resources and influence. During the uh, 2020 and so far in 2021, Undark has been asking important questions about COVID-19, government accountability, and the shifting climate. Um, the Conversation, which you can find at theconversation.com, um, uses an innovative model that depends on articles written by academics leveraging the expertise of some of the world's foremost experts on any topic. The site's editorial teams then work to ensure content is both accessible and highly informative for a general audience. So, not a bad one there. Uh, next one up is Grist at grist, that's G-R-I-S-T dot org. Um, grist is an independent nonprofit media organization that specializes in climate sustainability, and social justice. It was established all the way back in 1999, so they've been going for 22 years now. And their work has uh, been really just a, a bright light over the course of the pandemic and various climate-related disasters, from the wildfires in Australia to record cold temperatures in Texas. Uh, next up, The Intercept. That's right. The Intercept made this list. Let's keep that in mind. Um, and they're at theintercept.com. They seek to hold the powerful accountable by pursuing change-making journalism. Among their best articles are investigations of corruption, criminal justice reform, labor rights, and pollution. 
Uh, next up on this list is 538. Now, 538 is best known for its data science journalism. It had a really busy year over 2020 covering the presidential election. However, they also use the statistical analysis hard numbers to tell compelling stories year-round from the impacts of COVID-19 to the performances of sports franchises. So they're, they're not a bad source in general all the way around. Um, next up on the list of top 10 um, objective news sources is Lawfare. You can find them at lawfareblog.com, lawfareblog.com. And it's run by the Lawfare Institute. And with the backing of the Brookings Institutions, where the study of law and conflict meet, a host of legal and national security experts help the site cover topics like the pending U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the legality of various quarantine orders during the pandemic, and the use of force related to events like the George Floyd protests and the Capitol riot. Um, next up after that, ninth on the list of the top ten is PolitiFact. PolitiFact, fact-checking group run by the Pointer Institute, is one of the country's preeminent journalism institutions. PolitiFact specializes in rating the truthfulness of political statements, helping to hold politicians to account and limit misinformation and disinformation. Um, they were effective, fairly effective during the 2020 election and COVID-19 pandemic. Now, do keep in mind... Um, what happens here, though, is now we're, we're this is getting toward the bottom end of the list. And PolitiFact sometimes, while they do make sure to hold to account people's uh, words, they don't always equally go after this people for the same amount of things. So uh, now we're starting to get into the point where we're treading into the waters where you got to mind your P's and Q's. Now, with any source, no matter how high on this list they are. You should always use your own discretion when you're noting whether or not something's right. But now we're getting into the point where you're going to have to start being a little bit more on your toes. Um, although, number 10, National Geographic, not bad, right? And they are at nationalgeographic.com. They're a long-running staple of American journalism, of course. They started in the 1800s, for crying out loud. They cover science, culture, geography, and history. Uh, during the pandemic... It served as a trusted voice on scientific issues, from the basic science of SARS-CoV-2 virus to the latest discoveries in space. Um, now, just to let you know, when the way that the factual scores these, factcheck.org scored an average factual grade of 86.2%. So the number one objective journalism site that they have doesn't even score a 90% on factuality. That's why I'm saying you kind of have to be careful and make sure you're watching for the occasional thing that'll slip through. 86.2% means that a little over 13% isn't necessarily going to be what's actually going on. Um, and the, uh, the lowest scoring one on this list of top 10, um, National Geographic had 72.9%. So again, Mostly factual, a good source, but when over 25% of what you get off the site may or may not, you know, might be questionable, you got to be careful. Now, the other thing they score, and I didn't actually mention this, is whether or not they believe there is political bias on any of these particular sites. So allow me to go through those real quick. Number one, 
factcheck.org is noted to be center. It doesn't really have a left or right bias, according to uh, the factual. Smithsonian Magazine, likewise, center. Undark, center. The Conversation, center. Grist is noted as moderate left, but its factual grade is at 76%. That's where I want to note that you can have a high factual score, even if you happen to have a bit of a political bias. It just means that you are being very careful not to let your political bias obscure the facts that you're reporting. Uh, The Intercept is noted as being left in its uh, bias, but again, 75.3% factual grade. Good stuff. 538.com, noted as moderate left. Um, Lawfare, moderate left. PolitiFact, moderate left. And National Geographic is noted as as center. So it's kind of funny to note that um, when you're talking about score, there, there, there are plenty of other things out there that are pretty close by. National Geographic was, as we noted, number 10 on the list. 11 was Vox at 72.4%, ABC News at 72, CNBC at 71. Now, do you notice, by the way, the really big ones, your ABC and et cetera, come in top at 72%. This is where you have to start being careful because you start going down from there. Um, New York Times only has a 68%. Um, NPR has a 67% factuality score. CBS News, 67. Washington Post, 66%. Um, Things even like um, Politico at 65% might surprise you. Um, The New Yorker, 63%. USA Today, 62. Um, The Wall Street Journal, 61%. Um, popular science, only 56%. Yes, popular science has a pretty low factuality score, just above Fox News at 55%. So, again, when you're looking at news sources and you want unbiased, good reporting, where you know what you're getting is factual, well, again, I'll just list off the names one more time. Factcheck.org, Smithsonian Magazine, Undark, The Conversation, Grist, The Intercept, 538, Lawfare Blog, PolitiFact, and National Geographic are your top 10. I find an awful lot of information at those sites, and I invite you to check them out for yourself. And that way you will have a much better diet of information in this information age. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back.
and we're back. I'd like to thank you for tuning in to TMI with Aldous Tyler this week. There's one last thing I wanted to kind of cover. Um, while it was a promise of Joe Biden um, during the campaign and even since that he was going to cancel at least $10,000 worth of student debt, uh, he's yet to move forward on any of that. And as a consequence, student debt relief is now being used kind of like a weird lottery. State officials in Colorado, New York, and Ohio are holding out the grand prize of affordable public education to a handful of lucky people who are entered into a lottery when they get their COVID-19 vaccine. The state of New York is giving out 50 full free-ride scholarships. Ohio is offering five full-ride scholarships. Colorado will give out 25 scholarships, each worth $50,000. The New York and Ohio tickets would help people to go to public colleges and universities, which are supposed to be affordable, but of course aren't. At first glance, the state initiatives seemed like pragmatism, you know, with the federal government gridlocked and states unwilling to raise revenues to adequately fund universal access to affordable higher education. Hey, at least we can offer post-secondary education to a handful of the non-rich, right? And hey, if it entices more people to get vaccinated, that's a bonus, right? But doesn't this feel like something out of a dystopian you know, satire? I mean, as other countries suffer mass casualties because vaccines are just not available or affordable, here in the U.S. of A., we have the opposite problem. We're swimming in the much-coveted medical prophylactic, you know, the the, the vaccine against COVID, and yet we have to make a game out of the vaccine process in order to persuade our fellow citizens to get free shots to protect themselves from the deadly virus. Even worse, even worse, the big, shiny, enticing prize that young people can win is not, you know, sports car, speedboat, any of these silly things. No, it's affordable college, as if access to an education should not be considered a basic right, but instead must be considered some overpriced, totally out of reach, only for the elite indulgence, you know, like a leather couch or a Caribbean vacation or something else you might find on a, a game show. Uh, you know, end, end of the show where it's like, and here's your special prize. It doesn't have to be this way. America can easily afford to cancel student debt for everyone. And that would likely provide a huge boost to the economy. Studies have shown. But, you know, we've chosen not to do that. As our leaders constantly tell us that education is of vital importance in a competitive global economy, they've also created this just Twilight Zone episode we're all living through. Now, it's really kind of funny because I think this would be a game-changing thing. Cancel student debt. And Biden can do it. There's been executive orders drafted that he could just sign and it would be done with. But right now, it's hanging over everybody's head who has it. And because of that, we're trying to use it to pressure people into doing the right thing and getting vaccinated. Just strange. Anyway, you've been listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back here again, of course, next Friday, 5 p.m. Central on WSUM. Make sure to tune in then for your cure for the common media. And... Open!